0: This is the greatest sermon in the world preached by the greatest preacher in the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And to begin our exploration of this sermon, we're going to talk about poverty, which is not the most comfortable thing for people to talk about. It's not our typical dinner conversation, and I think if we had it our way, we probably wouldn't talk about poverty much at all, and I'd be okay with that. But Jesus talks about it, and we're going to talk about it. It's an uncomfortable word. And in fact, C.S. Lewis, um, he had a, a long time correspondence with a lady in America whom he never actually met. And in one of his letters to her, he wrote this about himself. You might not have known this. I'm a panicky person about money myself, which is a most shameful confession and a thing dead against our Lord's words. And poverty frightens me more than anything else except large spiders in the tops of cliffs. I think many of us share Lewis's fear of poverty, even though he was an extremely generous man, and so his fear came in the midst of his financial obedience and prioritizing Christ, but still it was scary to him, and I think it is to many of us. And when you get down to it, poverty is no great thing in and of itself. Uh, Sometimes books glamorize it. Uh, You have these hero stories emerging out of poverty into greatness, but generally speaking, it's not something that we should be chasing after, I think. New Testament scholar Leon Morris wrote, A rediscovery of Jesus' interest in the poor is long overdue. But I cannot rid myself of the feeling that much modern writing proceeds from the comfortable. People for whom poverty is an interesting subject for discussion, but who have never themselves experienced what real poverty is, I have. And poverty is not a blessing, nor is powerlessness. If you begin in Genesis and read through Revelation, you'll concur with Dr. Morris, poverty in and of itself for its own sake is not a blessing. It's the result of living in a world broken with and soaked through to the core with sin. It's not part of God's original design. And yet, Jesus begins his sermon by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we understand what Jesus is saying, we understand that there is a kind of poverty that is a blessing. It's the kind of poverty that each one of us should be deeply interested in pursuing. Because this kind of poverty brings the kingdom of heaven. This kind of poverty heads off the Sermon on the Mount. This kind of poverty is what Jesus declares to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last time I preached, I gave an overview of this entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It also is recorded in an abbreviated form in Luke chapter 6. Leo just read it for you. And this sermon, if you wanted to boil down the main message of this entire sermon and what Jesus is saying, I suggested to you that the main message of the Sermon on the Mount is that those who are saved look like their Savior. Those who are saved look like, live like, bear the image of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And the key to the sermon is not to look at the particular commands and try to apply them in a way that would get at the sense that we can do this better if we try hard. The key to the Sermon on the Mount is to look through the commands to the preacher of the sermon, who himself is the embodiment of all that we are called to in the sermon, which is the perfect righteousness of God. That's the key to the whole thing, and unlocks for us every single part of this sermon, beginning with the Beatitudes. Try to get a feel for what's happening here. This moment in time, as Leo read just before Jesus started the sermon, he had been up on a mountain all night long praying. It's about two years into his three-year ministry. And Jesus has had a growing group of followers, his disciples, not just the 12, but many disciples. And having spent the entire night with his Father in heaven, Jesus comes down from the mountain a little ways and calls to himself 12 of these followers and appoints them to the office of apostle. And he begins by preaching a sermon particularly to them and the other followers that he has out of the multitudes that have come to be healed. And imagine that. Jesus healing anybody who's coming to him of their diseases. Imagine the crowd, okay? There's no copay for this. This is a big deal. And Jesus looks surrounded by these masses and focuses in on this group of people who say, I am yours. And he starts to unfold to them bit by bit, beginning with the Beatitudes, what it means to belong to and follow him. This is a gospel sermon from beginning to end. And at the heart of it is this command that Jesus gives, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So to anybody who's listening or anybody who's reading, with their eyes open and a little bit of self-awareness, Jesus brings us right back to the cross because we recognize that we have already blown any chance we have of obeying the sermon apart from him and his grace. Rule following is a very popular approach to this sermon. Do this, do that, here a little, there a little, put it all together, then you've got a life that's exemplary. Perhaps we can apply it to nations, perhaps we can apply it to the healing of our society and our divisions, but Jesus says no, that breeds Phariseeism. Where we want to begin is where Jesus begins, with the recognition of our need for the Savior, so that we're not looking inward, but we're looking upward. Not inward, but outward, to the one who himself embodied perfectly all that he calls us to be. It's for those kind of people who recognize their utter need for Jesus. Those kind of people who are the Christ alone kind of people that Jesus intends the Sermon on the Mount to be understood and followed. He starts off with eight Beatitudes, which is, comes from a Latin word for blessing, for blessedness. And each one of these eight Beatitudes looks at an element of Christian character, answering something of the question, What kind of person is the Christian? What is she like? What kind of things is she about? What does she do and what is it like to know her? How would you describe that kind of a person? And Jesus describes at the beginning of each one of these sentences, a particular declaration, not just a wish, as in I hope you're blessed if you are poor in spirit, or I hope you're blessed if you mourn and grieve, No, he says, with all the authority of God himself, which is who Jesus is, blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And then he explains and gives the reason all the way through. And there's a logical progression to these Beatitudes. You can't just take them out of order, mix them up and take one and just say, I'm gonna run with that one because it really resonates with me. No, Jesus takes the whole package beginning with blessed are the poor in spirit, and one beatitude after another, building upon the others, he brings us through what the blessed life looks like, beginning with the kind of poverty that is a blessing, which is the very foundation for entering into the life described by Jesus here in this Sermon on the Mount. And if we understand the sermon correctly, he begins here in order to describe the kind of person who enters into the kingdom of heaven through the gospel to begin with. And it all starts with the kind of poverty that is a blessing. So, first things first, each one of these beatitudes begins with the word blessed. So, let's start there. What it means to be blessed. Because if there's one thing that we Americans can get into, it is to be blessed. We love to talk about how blessed we are. In fact, hashtag blessed, right? (laughs) Yeah, we love it. It's one of our favorite words. And because it's one of our favorite words, we have to remember one of the most basic rules of biblical interpretation. Check your baggage at the door. Every culture, every time throughout human history has had its own particular difficulties approaching various aspects of scripture. And for us, one of the most difficult things for us to wrap our minds around is the biblical concept of blessedness. What does it mean to be blessed? Because all of us talk about it. I talk about it. I, I can't talk about something going well in my life without saying, I am so blessed. And I mean it too. And so we have to understand this word knowing our own propensity to misunderstand what this is because it's so important and crucial to understanding where Jesus is going in the Sermon on the Mount because this is the word that is given the emphasis at every single first sentence that opens up this sermon through the first eight Beatitudes. I would put it to you like this. Blessedness, in the sense in which Jesus is using it, refers to the profound abiding joy and fullness of those who are favored by God. It's a very loaded term. Let me say it again. Blessed refers to the profound abiding joy and fullness of those who are favored by God. To put it another way, I would say that the blessed person is fit to burst with the grace of God. They've gone to the buffet table of God's grace and overstuffed themselves. Or rather, God has overstuffed them. They have so much grace, they don't know what to do with it. It's coming out and overflowing to people around them. Nothing can shake them. Have you ever met those kind of people that no matter what goes on in life, no matter how bad it gets, they're always happy? Maybe not with some foolish grin on their face, but but this sense that they truly mean it. They have joy. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are because they're fit to burst with the grace of God and they know it. Paul was this type of person. Writing from a jail to the Philippians, he comes out at the end of his letter and he says, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing could shake that guy. And if you read some of his autobiography of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians, that guy's, he's been through the ringer. And yet, he could write this and mean it, because he understood what blessedness is. It's the kind of gospel blessedness that heads off the letter to the Ephesians. In him, we have been given every spiritual blessing. Any that you can think of, name it, it's yours if you're in Christ. More grace, you've got it. Patience, we pray for patience. God says, if you're in Christ, you've got it. All of the storehouse of heaven is at your disposal. You've got the debit card. Go draw on it. Every spiritual blessing. Peter says, we have been given through the knowledge of him all things. It's all inclusive, by the way. All things necessary for life and godliness. This is blessedness. Now contrast that through the gospel with the way that we use blessed in our day-to-day lives. And I'm not going to go after the prosperity preachers. They're an easy target. We can make fun of them all day. Let's get inside our own house. How do we think of blessedness in conservative evangelicalism? And I'll be the first to tell you that I oftentimes associate it with things going my way. I oftentimes associate blessedness with an abundance of stuff. I associate blessedness with my kids being well-behaved. And the thing is, I I believe all those things. I I believe it's a blessing to be able to pay the bills and to have a little bit in savings, maybe a lot in savings. I don't know, that'd be a blessing too, but I'll speculate on that. I believe it's a blessing to not be sick. I resonate with the Apostle John when he's writing to his friend Gaius in 3 John 2. And he says, and he means it, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. See, Apostle John praying for a healthy body for Gaius. Because he recognizes that every legitimate gift that comes down from the Father is a blessing. But friend, here's the difference. Those things are not the essence of blessedness. They come they go. Our brothers and sisters in Africa who are being persecuted and hunted down by the Boko Haram extremists, systematically picked off one by one, are every bit as blessed as the person who will never undergo a day of suffering or persecution in their life. If they trust in Christ, they are both of them blessed. Because the essence of blessedness goes so deeply underneath the circumstances, so deeply underneath the gifts, because those things, the blessedness that Jesus is talking about is summed up and pictured in him. And he is our rock who never is shaken. He is our foundation who does not go away. He is the one who is ever present. Whatever gifts do or do not come, this is blessedness. Beatitude blessedness. And we have to be on guard in our society, in our culture, in our natural climate against false ideas of blessedness because we so naturally marry the idea of blessedness to material prosperity. We do. And the thing is, Jesus never condemned riches. And and if we look at the whole thing just simply in terms of stuff, we're missing the point entirely. But Jesus and his apostles did give a lot of warnings about riches. They never said, don't be well off, but they did say, watch out. Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know that there are different interpretations out there, like yeah, there was a, a gate in Jerusalem called the n- Needle Gate, and if a camel couldn't go through it, you had to kind of crawl and, you know, and all this stuff. But friends, he's talking about actual camels and actual needles. You do the math is that's what he's a hyperbole. This is a very potent picture of how difficult it can be for people who know that they have everything they need to feel their need of Jesus. In Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness that money can give, and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. When the Apostle Paul was preaching uh, in Athens, and he said that in him, in, in God, we live and move and have our being, he wasn't simply talking about those who didn't have it very much. He was talking about everybody. Everybody lives and moves and has their being in and is totally dependent, as Lewis says, on God. One of the most profound prayers uh, in scripture is found by a man named Agur in Proverbs chapter 30. Recognizing the very things that we're talking about, Agur prays, listen to this, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He knew these things that is so easy to trust in, can be they're so fleeting, they're so tempting, and they have nothing to do with rightness or wrongness, but they have everything to do with our natural tendencies as human beings. Guard your heart, he would say to us. No matter what situation you're in, guard your heart. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan theologian, he gives such a colorful illustration of this that I want to quote it to you, and I put it on the screen for you as well. In his talking about what blessedness is, Watson says, Most men think, because God has blessed them with an estate, therefore they are blessed. But alas, God often gives these things in anger. God grants a thing when he is angry, which he does not will to give when he is tranquil. He loads his enemies with gold and silver, as Plutarch reports of Tarpeia, a vestal nun who bargained with the enemy to betray the capital of Rome to them, if she might have a golden bracelets on their left hands, which they promised. And being entered into the capital, they threw not only their golden bracelets, but their bucklers too upon her, through the weight whereof she was pressed to death. God often lets men have the golden bracelets, the weight whereof sinks them into hell. Oh, let us pant after things heavenly. Let us get our eyes fixed and our hearts united to God, the supreme good. This is to pursue blessedness as in the chase. Things or no things. True blessedness refers to the unshakable joy and firm foundation and fullness that belongs to all who through grace in Jesus Christ are redeemed. The question for us is whether we believe that or not. And when the hard times come, that does a little bit of revealing. But Jesus would have us move past those things to recognize that true blessedness consists of our salvation and all that Jesus is to us through the gospel. That's blessedness. So who are the blessed ones according to Jesus? Well, he comes right out here and says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, uh, the twin account of the sermon in Luke simply records Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And based on that, Many interpreters, particularly of the Roman Catholic persuasion, have understood that to mean that there is inherently blessing in material poverty. So you've heard of the vow of poverty that many monks will take? Um, Monasteries, you would enter in with this idea that you were blessed by not having anything. So you get rid of all your stuff, put on a robe that probably wasn't very comfortable, get yourself a really awesome haircut, and there you go, you're blessed. And I wish it was that easy. Um, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's no poverty plus nothing equals blessing. So we misunderstand it entirely if we locate this on simply material poverty. The brilliant expositor James Montgomery Boyce pointed out that if that were true, if that were the actual sense, then we have no business going around trying to alleviate anybody's suffering or poverty because then you'd be robbing them of their blessing. And yet Jesus tells us, go do good to the poor. Go help those who don't have enough. This shows the heart of God. And so we're so thankful that God moved Matthew also to record the sermon because he, he really fills out the picture for us. It's the poor in spirit who are blessed. And Jesus uses a word for poor that doesn't just give the idea of having a little bit and so you can't afford some of the luxuries and finer things in life. No, he uses a word that specifically points out destitution, The kind of poor described by the word that Jesus uses are the kind of poor who you would find sitting at the gate of a rich man with face down for shame, holding out their hand, calling for alms because they knew that if they didn't get anything that day, they wouldn't eat. This is the kind of person Who entirely depended on the charity of others because they had absolutely no resources for themselves. And Jesus takes that idea of poverty, applies it to the spirit, and says it's those kind of people who know they've got nothing going for them spiritually, who are blessed because they are in the they are in the position to receive all that God has to give in Christ. So let's ask the obvious question: What does it mean to be spiritually poor? Sometimes the best way to answer a question is by asking an opposite question. What does it mean to be spiritually rich? When we're talking about riches, we're talking about resources, right? Rich people have enough resources to do whatever rich people want to do. Poor people don't have enough resources to even get some of the most basic things in life. So apply that to spiritual things. And when it comes to, merit, to measuring the resources that we have spiritually... How are we going to measure those things compared to what and who's the judge? Solomon says in Proverbs 20, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. David, recognizing that all of who he is, body and soul was crafted by his maker, says you knit me together in my inward parts, in my mother's womb in Psalm 139. And so we have God who's the creator and the examiner of the soul, and he weighs the heart. He weighs the soul in the balance of his perfect scales. And so the question is, who has spiritual riches under such an examination at the bar of God's perfect scales? Nobody. Nobody. This is exactly what Paul was getting at when writing our spiritual autobiography and quoting psalms he says in Romans 3 none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless now that's not a popular word we love the word blessed but we don't do hashtag worthless so much Who among a group of spiritually worthless sinners rebelling against God have any kind of spiritual resource at all? No, not one. The language is all-encompassing. Now, we're not born thinking that way, are we? We're not born recognizing that about ourselves. The self-esteem culture has gone in utero. We are born thinking the world of us. And when we struggle with that, we can turn to what passes for popular Christianity today. And we can open our books and read messages like, Girl, wash your face and be all that you can be. Because you've got it in yourself to be a Costco-sized pack of awesome sauce. No, you don't. No, you don't. You just think you do. And that's the problem. That's all of our problem, naturally is by by nature we think we've got what it takes to make ourselves acceptable before a perfect and holy God and to fix our problem through good works or whatever, community service, whatever it is. We all have these little things that we can do to try to make ourselves feel more acceptable, feel better. But before God who sees the heart, we have nothing. All of those things are like putting makeup on a cadaver. It's still rotting from the inside out. And to every person who's there, who tries to earn God's favor by making much of what they can do, by leaning on their own resource, charm, or presentation, Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now we can answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritually poor? It means to come with empty hands before God, to plead as we sang, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, and helpless, look to thee for grace. It's to stand with Isaiah before the throne of a holy God, and to cry out, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The poor in spirit have seen the Lord of hosts. They've stood in the temple next to the Pharisee rehearsing his good deeds and they've sat with the tax collector beating their breasts, crying, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is coming empty-handed to the throne of grace. This is spiritual begging. This is blessedness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those kind of people. So, are you a spiritual beggar? Are you a spiritual beggar who has recognized how absolutely nothing you have to present before God, knowing that you must flee entirely to His grace in Jesus Christ? Take honest inventory. By God's help, if you have hope in your resources, hope in your riches, hope in your kids, hope in your goodness, your charity, your ministry, your community service, your family, whatever. If you have hope in any of those things, then my friend, you are hopeless. And Jesus' call to you right now is put away those hopes, cast them down for the worthless things they are, and cling to Christ, and you will have mercy in full, fit to burst, forever blessed. Truth be told, spiritual beggars have everything, all of God's blessings, and that includes God's kingdom. And can you think of anything blessed, anything good that would be outside of the realm where God reigns supreme? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual beggars have the kingdom, my friends. Those who come to Christ alone have the kingdom. So let's ask that question. What is the kingdom? We read the Sermon on the Mount from Luke, and he says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God, raises a natural question. Is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? No, there's not. They're the same thing. See, Matthew is writing his gospel, particularly for a Jewish audience. Luke, he's writing particularly for Gentiles. Gentiles don't have so much problem talking about God. Jews hold the name of God in such high regard and esteem that it could be a stumbling block to them for Matthew to use that term, kingdom of God. So for their sake, being sensitive to his audience in order to reach them for Christ, he substitutes God's throne, God's dwelling place for God himself. It's legitimate. And so that's why Jesus says kingdom of heaven in Matthew, but kingdom of God in Luke. But they're the same thing. And that kingdom, simply put, is the realm where God reigns as king. I love some of this theology stuff that is so, we just, obviously, yeah, kingdom of God. It's not complicated. Where's the kingdom? Is where the king reigns. Who's the king of heaven? God. There you go, kingdom of God. I like that. And Jesus is saying that those who are poor in spirit have no less than God for their king. Sometimes I'll tell people that there's two baskets that you can put things into, There's salvation basket, where you put salvation things and heavenly things. Then there's the condemnation basket, where you put hellish things, frowny face things. And when it comes to those two baskets and we ask, which basket should we put the kingdom of heaven into? We're going to put it in the salvation basket, okay? Because that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's inconceivable that anybody would have the kingdom of heaven without having Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And when you have Christ as your Savior and your Lord, what don't you have? I still can't think of anything. Because in Christ, we get all that he is for us. And when Christ is the king of all the universe, the king of heaven, the king of earth, the king of now, and the king of the future, we have some understanding of what Paul means when he says that Christ is yours and you are God's and all things. I'm misquoting it. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to remember that off the top of my head. But the point is you've got it all. Okay? you've got it all in Jesus. In him you live and move and have your being. And he's coming back and he's setting up a kingdom. Sometimes more often than I'd like I worry about the future. And then I remember this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I remember that Jesus is coming back with a kingdom and that whatever the uncertainty of tomorrow may be, there is no uncertainty to that day. I know the real estate market's pretty hot right now, but friends, it doesn't even touch what's coming. And you've already got not only the down payment, but the entire thing paid off. You've got the real estate, my friend, in the kingdom that Christ is bringing. If you are poor in spirit, if you have fled to Christ. But here's the cool thing, even though we can smile at the future, there is so much now that radically affects us because this is true. Jesus, when he's describing the kingdom of heaven, look how he says it in Luke 17. The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. It's, it is present tense within you right now. Where is God reigning as king? Right now. Right now, where is the kingdom of heaven? Well, according to Jesus, it's in the hearts of his people. Right now. When we profess, and this is the basic Christian profession of faith Jesus is Lord. What we are saying is Jesus is king, Jesus is boss, Jesus is commander, Jesus calls the shots. This idea of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God really completely answers the question, can you have Jesus as your savior taking you to heaven without also having him as Lord and obeying him? And the answer is no, because wherever the kingdom is, the king reigns. Wherever the king reigns, the subjects do what the king says. And now take a look around. If you could choose anywhere in all creation, heaven or earth, any kind of government, what do you pick? I listen to a lot of news. It's not looking good. But this, friends, let me give you a suggestion. This is free advice. Pick the place where Jesus reigns as king because he is a good, very good king. He will never do any injustice to you. He will never, ever let you go hungry. He is the one in whom we have our life, our movement, our being. And he is the one who's saying to us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, because they have salvation, and with it, everything in Christ. I'd like to conclude by giving you the key to spiritual poverty. Because if it's really as important as all this, so important that Jesus begins his entire Sermon on the Mount, with blessed are the poor in spirit, then we really can't afford to miss what it means to be a spiritual beggar. Not, not simply to understand what spiritual begging is, but to actually be spiritual beggars ourselves. Here's the key to spiritual poverty. Christ. I know, it's shocking, especially at this church. We say that a lot. But the thing is, folks, it's true. And if it's as true as this, then we ought to be saying it a lot. The key to spiritual poverty is Christ. It's not looking to ourselves and taking stock of our own resources. It's looking to him and finding in him our whole sufficiency. And if you find yourself, in all honesty, spiritually proud, coming to God with hands that are full of charm and accomplishments, full of whatever it is that you would bring before God for your acceptance, then friend, there's nothing that you can do to become a spiritual beggar except to beg God to make you one. Spiritual begging is in the salvation basket. The salvation basket is in the grace of God category. And the grace of God category has nothing to do with us and our decisions. It has everything to do with God and his decrees. And so if you find yourself saying, I am not poor in spirit, I am not a spiritual beggar, I I like the idea, I understand the idea, but I I can't get there, then plead with God. If you're dealing with spiritual pride, then plead with God. Recognize what we sang earlier. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. God must do the work of giving you a new heart. This is in theological terms called regeneration. It's the new birth that Jesus was telling Nicodemus about. And if you need it, ask him for it. And when he gives it to you, you will be poor in spirit, and yours will be the kingdom of heaven. Plead with him. And if you are poor in spirit and have come to God, naked and in need of dress, helpless and in need of grace, If that has happened for you, then I would encourage you, in fact, I would exhort you, continue to the end the way that you began. This poor in spirit thing carries us through to glory. It's God's plan for sustaining you. Because we never start with Jesus and then somehow get spiritual resources on our own. We never end up growing that bank account of our own merit. It's all from Jesus, first to last. The flesh is so subtle and it plays nasty tricks on every believer and some of the chiefest of its tricks has to do with getting us to look inward to ourselves, coming before God, rather than looking upward to Christ always. And when we lose focus of him, we sink on the lake like Peter. So we have to, begin, we, we have to continue the way that we began by studying Jesus and examining Jesus and searching out where Jesus is going in scripture and then following him there. Being much in prayer, because prayer is the posture of the spiritually poor person. To risk over-quoting him, I'll throw one more C.S. Lewis quote out there. But it's good. He says, The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether, or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It's better to forget about yourself altogether. Friends, let's be like Paul, who, though he was a holy apostle writing scripture, he still saw himself at the end of his life as the chief of sinners. Let's be like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Let's be like Moses, the meekest man on earth, who, having defeated Pharaoh and led a nation out of bondage, said, God, I would ask you this one thing, show me your glory you think that's a request that God loves to grant yeah he does and surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses as that let us fix our eyes on Jesus that's the one thing needful fix our eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance the race that he has set before us let's pray Father, we thank you and praise you that you have been so clear with us about our condition, that you have been so abundant toward us in your grace, that you have been so sufficient for us in our Savior, that you have been so kind to us as to give us this day to think about, meditate on, and I pray, respond to these things. Lord, deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from our natural tendency to rack up our merits as if we had any. Forgive us for following so often the temptation to wander from your all-sufficiency, manifesting this chiefly in our lack of prayer. And help us, help us to follow hard after our Savior, who is our only hope, our rock of ages. And on that day when we fly from here and sit before your judgment throne, may we find ourselves in him complete. Blessed be your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.